Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by Rabbi Tobias Singer, the director of the counter-missionary organization, Outreach Judaism, which can be found on www.outreachjudaism.org. For nearly a decade, he was the host of one of Israel's most compelling radio talk shows and the Tovia Singer Show. He's a powerful and provocative voice of reason in radio, on Israel National Radio, on Channel 7 in Israel. The live call-in program is driven by the compelling insights and dynamic style of its renowned host, Rabbi Singer. Rabbi Singer is well known as the founder and director of Outreach Judaism, an international organization dedicated to countering the efforts of fundamentalist Christian groups and cults who specifically target Jews for conversion. As a world-renowned speaker, Rabbi Singer addresses more than 100 audiences a year. Throughout his stimulating and provocative appearances, Rabbi Singer has been an inspiration to thousands. Lecturing on college campuses and synagogues throughout the country has become an integral part of his work. He is the author of the book, Let's Get Biblical, Why Doesn't Judaism Accept the Christian Messiah? And is a frequent guest on television and radio shows all over the world. I highly suggest you follow him on YouTube, where he has close to 50,000 subscribers on his channel, Tovia Singer. You can also invite Rabbi Tovia Singer to speak to your community. Rabbi Singer's most well-known programs include captivating and entertaining weekend scholar-in-residence programs, fascinating adult education lectures, and his widely acclaimed role-play program for teenagers. To schedule a program with Rabbi Tovia Singer, please call Outreach Judaism at 800-315-5397 or visit their website. Rabbi Tovia Singer has been an inspiration to many, many people, including people in the Muslim community, in the Christian community, in the Noahide community. So having someone like this on the show is a real honor for us. This is somebody who I've personally been following for 20 years, and I couldn't believe that he was willing to come on the show, but it just goes to show what a great man he is. He's willing to talk to anybody to get the message to the world. So without further ado, Rabbi Tobias Singer. Thank you, Rabbi Tobia Singer, for joining us on Judaism Demystified podcast. Um, I want to begin by stating that there are many kinds of Christians that are, you know, good Christians, um, and we appreciate their friendship. It only took a few thousand years, but we finally got here, and it's a beautiful thing. So the following conversation isn't meant for convincing Christians that they're wrong. Judaism is not a proselytizing religion. We believe heavenly reward is not exclusive to us, and what they believe is their right. The purpose of this conversation is to shed light on the constant aggressive assaults on uneducated secular Jews by missionaries. And when they attack us, we have no choice but to point out how they've strayed from the truth. To the Jew who's listening, I hope this conversation provides you with enough support so you can stand your ground and continue to educate yourself about your own Judaism and be aware of the deceptive tactics these missionaries use. And now for my first question. So Jesus is a elusive figure in history. Some even debate if he even existed and if he was an observant Jew. And of course, there are various references to Yeshu Hanotsri in the Talmud. So who was the historical Jesus? And I ask this because 2,000 or so years ago, the, this Middle Eastern Jew is, is, who is now worshipped by billions of people, granted it mostly the result of a sword, but regardless of who he was, 
why don't people focus on the fact that not one contemporary historian wrote about him during his lifetime? Philo of Alexandria, zilch. The Jews and Romans, nada. Who is Jesus? Well, you, you, you're, you're begging the question. That, that is precisely the problem. The problem is that we have no contemporaneous historian that was not a Christian that wrote a single word about him. Our only first century sources are Christian sources. The oldest surviving Christian sources are Paul who wrote during the 50s, but makes Paul so problematic. Actually, there are many things that make Paul problematic, historically, theologically, but what is germane to your question is that Paul never met Jesus. Paul claims that he was a enemy of the Christian faith during the time that Jesus was alive. So we literally, we have no other sources um, there are methods, there are methods that are used to determine who was anyone of antiquity. Who could they possibly be? Now, you raise the point about, you know, what would a, a person who's living in the first century be running around and screaming around about that might get him in trouble with the empire? that might get someone crucified. Well, if you walked around saying that the end of the world was coming and the Roman Empire was gonna collapse, the Roman Empire would consider that a treasonous and you would then be worthy of crucifixion. Of course, you're presuming that Jesus was actually crucified. That's very, very likely. Is, is he a mythical figure? Um, it depends. It depends on. It depends on Nazareth. Let me sort of break this down for you. What points people in the direction that Jesus? There was somebody who lived in the empire during the first third of the first century. Is that Matthew and Luke, the only two books in the New Testament, that tell us that Jesus was born to a virgin in the city of Bethlehem. I know that your viewers will find that strange, but of 27 books in the Christian Bible, only two of them make that assertion. What's very striking about Matthew and Luke is they're very late books. Even in the chronology of the New Testament, they're written about 80, 85, long after Paul's letters, long after the book of Hebrews, long after the book of Mark. And here we have this idea that he was born in Bethlehem, but each of them independently use a strategy, use a plot device to have the baby born in Bethlehem. They're contradictory plot devices, but they both concede that he was originally from, change that, they both concede that he's from Nazareth, that ultimately he winds up in Nazareth and they use contradictory methods to get him there. And they have contradictory methods to get him to be born in Bethlehem, completely contradictory. That seems to point us in the direction that this was a real figure of history. And both of these 
writers, we don't know who wrote Luke, we don't know who wrote Matthew, but whoever wrote them worked really hard to get him to be born in Bethlehem. Why? There's good reason for it, because Bethlehem was the birthplace of King David, see 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 56. So these writers want him to be born in Bethlehem. And they work so hard at this that it seems like he probably was originally from an unknown place. When I say unknown, the city of Nazareth is mentioned nowhere in Tanakh, nowhere in the Talmud, nowhere in Josephus. It was a nothing town. According, if the archaeologists are correct, then the present, then the Nazareth, which is not the present day large city of Nazareth in Israel, where the largest uh, Christian community in the, in the Holy Land lives. I'm not talking about that. Forget that. I'm talking about the ancient, ancient Nazareth was a, literally a one-horse town in the Upper Galilee. If they're right, that means he came out of the backwaters of nowhere, and then these Matthew and Luke would independently try to get him to be born in Bethlehem. So that would point in the direction that Jesus was not a mythical figure, but he was a real person who really is from Nazareth and was born in Nazareth. And that's why Christians, not routinely, but always referred to Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth, never Jesus of Bethlehem. That's the name that stuck. So that this is not the kind of proof you, the viewer, want, but that's really good stuff. Now, in terms of Chazal, like what did Chazal have to say about them? Is you're asking really challenging questions. So in the Talmud, so although people go, well, the Talmud was written in the year 500 or but that means when the Talmud was finally edited, compiled, that doesn't mean it was written then. In fact, there is a very famed contributor to the Talmud that actually appears in the Christian Bible in the book of Acts, Rabbi Gamliel. So the Talmud has contributors that date back to 150 BCE. That would be the the period of the Tanoim all the way to the year, let's say about 200 till, till Rabbi Huda the Prince, known as Rabbi, Rabbi Huda Anossi. So a period of more than 300 years. So as it turns out, we have texts in the Talmud that, are, that describe a Jesus, a Yeshu of Nazareth, if we go back to early manuscripts. However, this is a huge however, listen very carefully. The Jesus that we find in the Talmud seems to be placed in a period of either the first century BCE, a student of Bishua ben Parachia, who was in a ton of very early Tana. He lived about 100 BCE, meaning he lived a century before the Jesus of Christianity. Or we have another figure, another Jesus figure, um, who was in the second century, essentially the time of Rabbi Akivim. Now, both of those figures do not come off well. There's nothing positive about this person. Moreover, it is quite possible, I want you, the viewer, to know this, uh, 
that all of these are the Jesus of Christianity and the dates were altered in the Talmud because Jews didn't want to get killed. That means originally the Jesus that we find in the Sanhedrin, in Gittin, it's, it's all in Avodah is really all the Jesus of Christianity. And this is a view I think that I wouldn't use the word consensus, but I'd like to. In reality, all these texts in the Talmud are about the Yeshu of Christianity, of Nazareth. But when the Talmud was first written, it was in and edited in about the year 500, maybe 530. So then there were very few Christians in Babylon. But more importantly, the Christians had no power in Babylon. So the rabbis in Babylon who compiled the Talmud had no fear of Christians. But Christianity would, the church, Christendom would move east rapidly. So by the time you get to the ninth century or so, it's quite possible that we edited the Talmud so that it doesn't appear to be the Jesus of Christianity, but when in fact it is. Now, if you want me to go on, it gets even more interesting because this gets very interesting. Please go on, yeah. All right. I don't talk about this much, but I'll do it here with you. So as it turns out in our earliest traditions, the Jesus, this Jesus was born out of an illicit affair between a woman named Miriam, Mary, and a Roman soldier named Pantero, or Pandera, it's a Roman name. And as it turns out, he had no Jewish father, okay? Now, this would be very striking because we have this in really old sources that this Jesus is born uh, out of a, an illicit relationship, a Jewish mother, so he's a Jew, but non-Jewish father, it's really problematic. And in fact, she's married, so it's really bad. Now, is it just an accident or is this, is this just some sort of, it just happens to be, that the Christian Bible will come up with the notion that Jesus didn't have a human Jewish father, meaning he was born of a virgin. And the Jews have really ancient sources. And I mean really ancient, it's not legendary, really ancient sources that he also didn't have a human Jewish father. But Christianity would come up with a way to address that problem in a way that's complementary. He was born to a virgin, the son of God, and the Talmud would convey that, in fact, she was the furthest thing from a virgin, and in fact, he was born to an illicit relationship. Is this just a coincidence? And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, doesn't sound like it. I mean, why would they come up with this? It gets even more interesting, because if you think I'm reaching here, if you think that I'm trying to make this provocative, I'm actually trying to tone this down. It gets more interesting. Here's what you've never even considered. The notion that Mary was married to a man named Joseph, but he wasn't the father of Jesus in the Christian Bible, that doesn't come up in the early writings of the New Testament. 
Meaning, let's just think for a moment. If, if Mary was in fact impregnated by a Roman soldier, so there's no Joseph, he's the mythical figure who's introduced later to sort of shield the situation. What would you expect to find in early Christian literature? You would expect to, to discover that in the earliest writings in the New Testament, Joseph, the husband of Mary, is not mentioned. And that's exactly what you find. What you discover is that in the letters of Paul, the letters of Paul are huge. Paul makes the, is by far the most prolific author in the New Testament. An enormous part of the Christian Bible is attributed to him. It's enormous. Paul never mentions Joseph, never does. So that's early stuff. The book of Hebrews, that's written before the Gospels, no mention of Joseph. It gets even more interesting. In the book of Mark, the earliest chronologically of the four Gospels, the book of Mark, Joseph is never mentioned. Mary's husband is never mentioned, let alone that she was a virgin. Never mentioned. Even more crazy interesting, in Mark chapter 6, it's not Joseph who was the carpenter, but Jesus was the carpenter. In fact, our only source that Jesus was a carpenter is Mark chapter 6, verse 3, a tecton in, in Greek, which means a kind of a, just a craftsman. We only find Joseph being snuck into the scene where this new actor is inserted into the Christian scene in Matthew and Luke, which are written about 10, 15 years after the book of Mark, meaning around the year 80, 85. How interesting. Moreover, here's where it gets crazy. In the book of John, only Joseph, the husband of Mary, is mentioned, but not Mary, the not Mary, the mother of Jesus, by name. Mary, the mother of Jesus is mentioned in the book of John, just not by name, for reasons that are beyond the scope of your question. So therefore, all of this, that's all we can do is collect this vast amount of literature and, and tease it out very carefully using rigorous methodology. And we can conclude that what Chazal, what our sages of blessed memory convey to us. Now, no doubt, all these texts in, in the Talmud and all these Talmudic Midrashic texts means really, really early stuff, no doubt had to be toned down a bit because we didn't want to get killed. And we censored a lot of our material, a lot of our prayers, because Christians had a way of dealing with problems, and that is killing people who created problems. There's your answer. Very interesting. So is the reason why they try to insert it later is because they were trying to fit in the, you know, the genealogy of uh, Joseph, because they had to kind of prove that that Jesus came from the line of David, right? So is that why they felt the need to do it? Like, why, why did they just decide to insert Joseph later on? What would be their reasoning? Well, you need, if you, the idea, so here's what happens. Independently, the idea that Jesus was A, born to a virgin, and B, born in Bethlehem, um, all of that, these are ideas that developed orally, traditions that, um, that developed in the early Christian world. We're talking about the first century. So, right. for example, let's say the year 
the, the book of Mark is written about the year 70, at the time of the, about the time of the destruction of the second temple. In fact, the destruction is mentioned in Mark chapter 13. So let's say it's written about, so that's from the crucifixion the year 30 to the year 70, that's 40 years. Now, 40 years may not seem like a lot of time. It's an enormous amount of time. And in that period, the average expected lifespan was 25, 30. How long did people live? I mean, if modern medicine did not exist, would you be alive today? Would I be alive today? I'm not sure. Okay. All right. There you go. So this is a very, so therefore there's a lot of development. Now the idea of a virgin birth that the gods will, the demigods were born to virgins was very well known and widely believed in the Greco-Roman world and beyond in the East. They just were. It, it didn't make a difference. It was Romulus, the founder of Rome, Octavius, Caesar Augustus, Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, all of them born to virgins because they were Pythagoras, the great thinker, philosopher, all born to virgins, mothers impregnated by Zeus. So this was so this idea was very attractive to the to the whole world around that this was emerging in. And then you need a cover. You need you you need like she got married to somebody or else something might have occurred. Something something would then be, have to be explained if because if she got pregnant and had no husband, then everyone would be jumping of like where's the husband and accusing her of these things. So the Joseph character would probably have to be developed a little bit later. And that's how I think these things developed. And then you're stuck with the issue of the Messiah has to be from the house of David. We have very specific prophecies in Tanakh that Mashiach has to come not only from the tribe of Judah, but from the house of David. So you need that. Whoever wrote the book of Matthew, we don't know who wrote it, it was written anonymously, was very well aware of that. And in his first chapter, he traces the genealogy of Joseph. That's just the first 16 verses of the book of Matthew. Now, the crazy thing that you should have all picked up is that's the genealogy of Joseph. What does Joseph have to do with Jesus if Joseph wasn't his father? It's all <laughs> silly. And for those of you who don't know this, the only way a tribe identity could be conveyed is through the father, not the mother. Numbers chapter one. That's it. It has to be daddy. Only a father can could convey tribal identification. Jewishness, mother, if you you'll ask why, that's in the Torah as well. So each one is a separate thing. So yeah. what happened was when the church introduced the idea of a virgin birth, it actually sabotaged the notion that Jesus could be the Messiah because then he lacks a human Jewish father with which to trace his genealogy back to King David. Joseph's putative genealogy in Matthew and in Luke are contradictory and irrelevant. And nowhere does it say that Mary was from the house of David. It wouldn't be relevant, but Christians try to deal with it. So you have a lot of this stuff going on at the same time. It doesn't hurt the church that their primary audience with whom they're successful with converting are pagans. Those who knew little about the faith they were asked to embrace. And that's why I'd be successful among them. Yeah, I think it's very significant that 
the claim that the Christians have that Jesus was the king of the Jews. You know, you see that all over. The, you see that in uh, all these movies they make about him. And king of the Jews would be something that we would all notice, right? It's nowhere to be found anywhere. We don't have it, like we mentioned before. So that's really just tying in, you know, the first question I had. But I wanted to jump into Paul because you brought him up. And to me, I feel like he, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like he invented anti-Semitism. Um, I think there's, I can't think of a more enduring vicious libelous slander than saying the Jews murdered God. And that's a lie that's hard to shake off. You know, any anywhere we go, every century, we're kind of blamed for, you know, whether we um, either were the synagogue of Satan and we did a deal with the devil, there's always some type of, uh, you know, kind of blood libel against us that we can't shake off. And I personally, I think that has a lot to do with Paul. So um, can you explain a little bit about who Paul was, because he claims he was a Pharisee, which I doubt. And he also claims he was a Jew, which I doubt. So can we just understand him? Because I feel like he doesn't get enough attention. Right. So we need to explore this. And this is bigger than Paul. The church had a problem. And the problem is the Jews. You see, if the Jews recognize that Jesus is not the Messiah, this poses a theological conundrum for the church, for those who are spreading it. Christians who are being evangelized have to ask the question, who were the people who met Jesus? Who were the people who were there in time and in place? Well, Christian missionaries say, well, the Jews were in the land of Israel, they encountered him. And the idea of Messiah is uniquely Jewish. Then why, tell me, did the Jews not believe in Jesus? That means, why don't the Jews believe in this? We're the only people that can read this Bible in its original language. The idea of a Messiah is uniquely Jewish. No one else believed in an idea of a, a Mashiach. I mean, this idea of a Mashiach did not exist at all in any way in any other religion. It didn't exist. The word Christ meant nothing to the Greco-Roman world. Nothing. So then why don't the Jews believe in the Christian Messiah? Well, you've got to come up with an answer. Now, you could come up with the following answer, which will be the correct answer. Missionaries would say that, well, the Jews read their Bible, examined the evidence, and drew a very different conclusion. People go, well, why? <laughs> because that means a lot of the Jews draw a very different conclusion. They can't say that. They never say that. Only liberal Christians say that. The kind of people we're not worried about. But the serious Christians can't concede that point. They can't concede it because this is an enormous credibility problem for the church. And therefore, Paul and other writers in the Christian Bible have to characterize, have to portray the Jews as essentially demonic. They're enemies of God in, in a supernatural way. There's a veil over their eyes, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 4. There's scales over their eyes. They're blind from the truth. And we find this in the Book of Romans as well, that God blinded them for some reason to uh, ignite their jealousy among Gentiles who would embrace the grafted 
branches who would embrace it. This is completely contrary to Tanakh, because in Tanakh, the, the message of Mashiach is that the Jews understand it, and the Gentiles grab the shirt of a Jew and say, take us with you, if we have heard that God is with you. I mean, this is completely reversed in the Jewish scriptures. In Tanakh, it is the Jewish people. It is Beis Yaakov L'chu V'nelcha. It is the, the house of Jacob that gets it, that comes and goes, and all the nations go by our light. See Isaiah chapter 60. See, I mean, Zechariah chapter 8, verse 23. See Jeremiah chapter 6. It's all over the place. See Isaiah 49, verse 6. The whole purpose of the Jewish people is to be a light to the nations in Orlagoyim. That's the whole point. I mean, it's just the reverse. So what you must do is you must say things about the Jews that are not complimentary. Christian anti-Semitism is understandable. If I had been a Christian and all I was exposed to was the New Testament, I would hate me too. Because that's how the Jews are characterized by Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16. 1 Thessalonians is the oldest surviving book in the entire New Testament, written about 49 or 50. Even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus Christ, contrary to all mankind, enemies of God, forbidding us to preach to the Gentiles. That's Paul's writing that. You have Peter screaming this obnoxious stuff about the Jews in, early on in the book of Acts. John characterizing the Jews as the seed of the devil, a, literally a demonic people. And that's where the church comes up with this, because you can either explain the Jews as disagreeing with the conclusions of the church, which creates a huge new problem, or conversely, you could say that the Jews are so demonic, they're so dark, that they're such enemies of God that they know the truth, the devil knows the truth, Satan understands the truth, but denies him anyway, and only the devil can do that. And that's exactly how the Jews are portrayed in the Gospels. The Jews are portrayed in the Gospels as knowing the truth, knowing that Jesus really rose from the dead. Pontius Pilate gets it that Jesus is innocent. Pontius Pilate's wife, who were introduced to in Matthew chapter 27, she knows that Jesus is innocent because of a dream she had the night before, but only the hordes of Jews are screaming, crucify him, and as a result, we would pay an enormous price for this. So that's where the anti-Semitism is inflamed. It's inflamed that the Jews control the world, we control Pontius Pilate, we control Rome, we control who gets crucified and who doesn't, and that, char that, that characterization of the Jews remains and moves through the the protocols of the elder design. I mean, that's what Nikolai II, the the Tsar of Russia, Alexander III, Tsar of Russia in the late 19th century, really wicked people who engage in horrible, horrible anti-Semitic acts because they bought this caricature of the Jew. And therefore, when the Protocols of the Elders of Zion was written in the early 20th century, it made complete sense to the Russian Orthodox Christians. Wow, fascinating. So would you say that, that um this man, Paul, who came from Damascus, who was previously harassing Jews, was an actual Pharisee and was an actual Jew? Or could no, it be that? No, I don't think he was a Pharisee at all. I think that he 
claimed to be a Pharisee because it gave him the most credibility. Mm -hmm. At the time in the Christian Bible, strangely, the Pharisees are characterized as the gold standard. It's not only right. in the New Testament, but also Josephus. I mean, that was the gold standard to be the sure. people who sit in the, in the seat mm -hmm. of Moses. Now, no doubt, just like today, I'll say something I don't think I've ever said on air. If you ask people about who are not Jewish about Judaism, the denomination of the Jewish faith, the Jews that people know most about, not just in the United States, but also in Finland, are Orthodox Jews. Right. It would be, I don't mean, I'm not trying to offend anyone, but if you asked people what's the difference between what Reform and Conservative Judaism believes, I don't think very many people will be able to tell you. I mean, the iteration of Judaism that people know is the Orthodox traditional Torah halachic Judaism. That's what everybody knows. And no one's quite sure. That's the same deal 2000 years ago. Judaism was the only monotheistic Abrahamic religion in the world. I mean, today there are other religions that are monotheistic. We had no competition at the time. It was a very popular religion. So people knew about us, but Paul's attitude, his chameleon approach to whatever you need to be, you can become in order to convert people, to assert his CV, his credentials as a Pharisee in the early Galatians 1 and 2, Philippians 3, his, his hostility towards the early Christians that he that he claims to have had. I'm not sure that he actually had this. He may have amped it up in order to lend credibility. All of this points us in a very different, his Greek and his affection for Greek thinking, his understanding of the resurrection of the dead, where there was no physical resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. All of that and more points to you have a person who is familiar with the word Pharisee is an anachronism with what we now call Orthodox Judaism. He was definitely very familiar with it, but he himself was not. He was, he was influenced in a, in a Greek way. And if Luke is right, the author of Acts is correct. If he came from Tarsus, Paul doesn't make that claim, but Luke does. So then he would have come from a city that was known for its thinking, its philosophical, as a philosophical center of the, of the Greek world. So none of that points to him being a Pharisee. Okay, so um, to sum it up with Christianity, Christianity started out as a small sect of Jews whose rabbi, Jesus, died before being able to fulfill his quote-unquote mission, but his followers just couldn't let go, a common theme among various false messianic cults within Judaism, I may add. And after a few generations, this very minuscule group of cult followers Felt, felt out of place in their synagogues, while a new group of non-Jewish pagans turned Christians resented these Messianic Jews for continuing to practice Judaism and not being all in with their cause. So at a crossroad, this sect eventually splits from Judaism entirely and becomes a new religion. Can you elaborate on what ultimately led to this turn of events and all the way through the culmination of the Council of Nicaea? All right, it's almost certain that Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. Let's just start there. That is a claim that would be made for him. Now, it's not just 
in the Talmud, which is not charitable towards Jesus, I mean, there's never do we find anything in the Chazal in the literature of our sages that Jesus was a false Messiah. That would have been a very, very serious accusation. And they would have said it if they, if they thought it. it. He's nowhere is he accused of that. He is accused of doing a lot of things, but not that. But it gets more interesting. If we look at the gospels themselves, Jesus doesn't walk around saying, I am the Messiah. It gets even more interesting than that. If you take the book of Mark, which is the earliest, chronologically, the earliest book in the New Testament, the first eight chapters, and it's a small book, so it's 16 chapters, the whole book is 16 chapters long. So halfway through the book, the most striking element is that Jesus, Jesus' identity is not known to anyone, and it's in a very important secret, and no one's supposed to know who he is. Like, how did that make it in? Why is that there? It gets even more interesting. In Let's just take Matthew 16 as an example. Right before the crucifixion, Jesus, we are told in the Gospels, asks his followers, who have been hanging out with him for a really long time. So Jesus had a ministry that lasted either one year, according to the Synoptic Gospels, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or lasted three years, according to John, regardless. But in the Gospels, Jesus at the end goes, who do you think I am? And guess what? Nobody knows, except we're told Peter, who says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus' reply to Peter is, um, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. And then makes him a, 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 a central, a very important apostle and says that you, you gives him that name, Peter, you are the rock upon which the church will be built, the keys of heaven given to you. That's where the primacy of Peter comes from, from that story that we find in the Gospels. But hold on, like, hold on, stop the music for a moment. If Jesus is walking around claiming to be the Messiah, why would the New Testament write something so embarrassing that no one knew who he was? And even when Peter gets it, Jesus retorts that no one could have told you that means Nobody could have told you that. That means that he was not claiming to be the Messiah. And these stories are then inserted into the New Testament. How do they make it into the Gospels? It's a little tricky because this is, a, a, this is an apologetic. This is a defense. In the early stages of Christianity, there must have been a lot of people going around saying that this guy, Jesus, never claimed to be the Messiah. Why do you think he is? And then the Gospels have to put into the text, I mean, these ideas have to creep into an oral tradition that ultimately gets written down by these four anonymous, these four anonymous authors of the Gospels that, well, actually was a big secret nobody knew, and no one knew to the end, or else how did it get in there? Now, I know you, the viewer, are thinking, well, how do I draw these conclusions when I don't believe in the New Testament? It means how could anyone use a book that people believe a holy book, which I don't believe in, how can I use that to prove anything if I don't believe in it? Like, you know, you can't have it both ways. If I don't believe in the book, how can I use the book? Well, there are, there are certain rigorous methods that we can use 
to examine any book of antiquity and ask the question, is any of this historical? That means you may have a book that's not a holy book, but it doesn't mean that there's no historical characters in there or there's nothing that happened in there that's historical. We have many, a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. There are historical characters in Hamlet. That means can it be that the Christian Bible contains some history in it and, and is, was left there as a relic? And if there is, how could you know it without playing the game of cherry picking? Well, the answer is, if there's something in the book, this is like the most rigorous method to be able to draw that conclusion. It's called, essentially, it's called many things, or we'll call it the criteria of embarrassment. The idea is that if there's something in the Christian Bible that's very embarrassing to Christianity, it's very unlikely that someone invented it. If there's something in the New Testament that does not portray the disciples, Jesus' followers, as great as terrific then it's unlikely someone would have made it up if there's something embarrassing about paul okay this is a very simple uh, method and it's it's highly rigorous here's a case where its application is perfect because this is something very embarrassing nobody knew who jesus was the disciples themselves asked who do you think i am they have no idea in the book of mark again the earliest gospel it's the biggest secret in the world who Jesus is. Like, no one is supposed to know. Like, why is that in there? You know, that's, that's a, so therefore, that would indicate that he actually didn't claim to be the Messiah. Likely, he was someone that was uh, perhaps teaching that the end of the world is coming, like everybody else at the time. I mean, at that time in the first century, living in Eretzisro, living in the land of Israel, under the heel of the empire, was not an easy matter. There was no... Uh, Jewish agency is no Israeli defense forces. There was nothing like that. You were in a you were living under oppression, and therefore that would explain him getting killed. And then people later would say, "Well, he was an innocent person that got crucified, wrongly crucified, wrongly executed." And then some would say, "Well, I saw him. You know, he came to me. It appeared to me probably someone like Mary Magdalene, who was out of her mind. Even the New Testament concedes." that she was possessed by devils. So that's how the whole thing developed. Not him walking around claiming he's the Messiah, and that's where it developed during the lifetime. That's a later claim than, than is then written into the text. Interesting. So yeah, I also, I find it very interesting that um, I noticed like in, in the comment sections of a lot of your videos, where like you completely nailed it, somebody, you know, a Christian comment um, commentating is, citing a christian verse to prove their you know point which really to me always never made any sense like why are they using their the new testament to prove the new testament's claims but anyway um i didn't want to i didn't want to touch on the council of nicaea because i feel like that's a very big turning point in the history of the church um so can you just in the, in summary tell our audience like what exactly happened during that time because obviously you know with the trinity and all these ideas they can't you know they came to fruition so in the early period of the church, which means the first three centuries, there were enormous schisms in Christianity. These schisms did not begin after the New Testament was written. We find these schisms in the writings of the New Testament, particularly in the letters of Paul and the book of Acts. Christians are fighting each other nonstop. In fact, in Paul's writings, uh, it's Christians that are fighting with Christians more than 
Jews, meaning non-Christian Jews. The idea that Jesus was divine and God-like is already developing in the Christian Bible. It's a slow development with an adoptionist theology in the book of Mark. By the time you get to the book of John, which is the last, probably written about 95, the last book to be written in the New Testament, Jesus is already presented as a divine being. Now, a divine being in the Greco-Roman world does not mean God created the universe equal to Jupiter. It meant that you were like divine, like you were up there. But this was a henotheistic pagan system where there's like the great God and then there are many, many lower tier gods that were both mortal and divine at the same time. But you see where all this is going. This is all moving into full-blown idolatry. By the second century, we have Tertullian, a church father from Carthage, who comes up with the word Trinity, invents it at the end of the second century. It's so interesting that you have Rabbi Huda Nasi in Israel compiling the Mishnah. At the very same time, um, in Alexandria, excuse me, in Carthage, you have Tertullian, exact same time, inventing the word Trinity. He didn't believe in the Trinity in the Orthodox sense, but it was already emerging in the early church that Jesus was God, but they had a problem, and that is, we have to believe there's one God because we believe in the Jewish Bible, but, and if God the Father is God, but there's also God the Son, doesn't that make two gods? And if there's a Holy Spirit that's God, doesn't make it three gods, and that can't be. And there's enormous division in the church in the second, third, and early fourth century, huge division of exactly what was the nature of Jesus' divinity, enormous issue. The basic argument came down to, was Jesus from the get-go always God equal to the Father and was eternal, had no beginning? Or was there a point in time when only the Father existed and Jesus the Son came into existence in the eternal past? This became the, this was the explosion in the church. And it became, it became just such a battle, the whole church was divided over this. These were not the only two views, but these were the two most, these are the two big views that emerged by the fourth century. What changes everything is in the year 312, in the fall of 312, the emperor of Rome, Constantine, Yemach Shemai is a big anti-Semite, he wins a battle in in October of 312, and he attributes his victory to the Christian God. And as a result, he essentially becomes a Christian and makes Christianity a licit, a legal religion. So now Christianity is a legal religion, and then it would emerge to be a, a preferred religion. It doesn't become the official religion of the Roman Empire until later on in the fourth century. But Constantine was very unhappy with this schism about what was the nature of the divinity, divinity of Jesus. So this is a huge argument. Uh, there was a, a, a thinker, actually two thinkers from Alexandria that fought over this. And, and this was an enormous dispute and Constantine was very unhappy with this. There was one other schism in the church that had to be solved. This is what most people don't know. And that is when to celebrate Easter. 
Until that point, most Christians celebrate Easter based on when the Jews said it was Passover. Now, I don't want to get more complicated because John disagrees with the Synoptic Gospels over when on what day Jesus was crucified. I don't want to get into that, so I'm just going to leave it alone and just say that there were a big, a large, significant segment of the Christian world for the first three centuries celebrated Easter when the Jews said it was Passover. The Jewish calendar is oral Torah, okay? We, in order to create a Jewish calendar, you need to have information how to create the calendar and when to intercalate an extra month in order to keep Passover in the springtime because the Torah says so in Deuteronomy 16, verse 1. It's oral Torah. Right now, just take my word for it. You have to know an oral tradition in order to know how to have a calendar, meaning you need the Jews. It's not a 12-month calendar. There's nowhere in Tanakh that says a year compri is comprised by 12 months doesn't exist. I know you think it does, it doesn't. So listen carefully. But as you can imagine, in Rome, it was becoming a little, bishops in Rome and, and roundabout were becoming very uneasy about the notion that we have to rely on the Jews when to determine when Easter was. So another idea was going is we have to do away with the Jewish view altogether and set Easter to another date. These were the two issues that really were set to divide the empire, the deity of Jesus and the calendar. Do we depend on the Jews for determining when Easter was? And Constantine called bishops, summoned bishops from the East and the West. Remember, Constantine presided over both the East and the West, and that would continue until Theodosius, the end of the fourth century when Theodosius was emperor. He, the East and the West were under a common emperor during this period. And the key point is he said he called bishops, hundreds of them came and had to set this and voted on it, voted on it. And ultimately, I write about this in volume one of Let's Get Biblical, ultimately, uh, there's a vote and the Christians decide, the bishops decide that we're going to believe in the iteration of the doctrine of the Trinity, that Jesus is eternal, that he was always eternal and he's very light, a very light, the creed that emerges from the Council of Nicaea and that Easter will not be determined um, by the Jewish calendar based on the um, the vernal equinox, which is the solar calendar. And that, that has an enormous consequence because that's why the church became very anti-Torish Valpeh, anti the oral Torah. And the church would, um, would just become completely weighed down by this idolatry, which is a self-inflicted wound from which they have never recovered. Wow, eye-opening stuff. So, you know, it almost seems tiresome when you hear Christians cite Isaiah 53 as their ace in the hole argument, when it's clearly taken out of context. The Jewish people are called a servant in the singular all over the book of Isaiah. So they're really cherry picking, like you mentioned before. Uh, I find the best argument to challenge is to challenge Christians to read the original Hebrew, learn proper dikduk, grammar, and the problem is solved. Almost every Christian who converted to Judaism that I ever met saw the error of their way by following this process. There's a good reason the original Hebrew version was kept hidden from the Christians by the church for millennia. So Jews, however, are referred to as the people of the book. Our value system has always been based in literacy and education with the Torah as our driving force. That's why no monarch was ever a real threat to the Jews because he's not our true king, nor is his law the true law. As a Jewish educator, 
what do you feel are our is our ace in the hole verses that missionaries have no answer for? Cool, that was a lot. So <laughs> I, I want to first speak to you, the viewer, for a moment. Even if you don't speak Hebrew, if you had just read the book of Isaiah from beginning to end, you would know Isaiah 53 is speaking of the nation of Israel in the singular. The reason you would know that is because you wouldn't be reading it out of context. All you'd have to do is read, start from even, I'll, I'll even help you here because you can even start with the beginning of the servant songs, Isaiah 41, verse eight and nine, where Israel is identified as God's servant. Isaiah 42, verse six, the servant of God is the, the covenant nation, the Brit Am. 43, verse 10 and 11, even if you had a King James version, all you'd have to do is read 43, verse 10 and read, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. You would discover that the servant are witnesses in the plural. Even the King James doesn't tamper with that. So I'm, I'm giving you a way out of this, even though you haven't brushed up on your Hebrew yet. You would go to Isaiah 44, verse 1, and find out that the servant, Jacob, is Israel. You'd see the same thing in 44, verse 1, 44, verse 21. You would see the same thing in 45, verse 4. You would find the same thing in Isaiah 48, verse 20 and 21. You would find the exact same thing in Isaiah 49, verse 3. So I, I, I have relief for you, the viewer, who not yet erudite in the Hebrew language, and you don't feel like taking my word for it. That's all right. Open up the biggest Christy Bible you can find with the biggest cross on it you can find. I don't care. You'll find that in the Christian Bibles. So what the church has done to its parishioners is deprive them, as you said, of the Hebrew language. Moreover, they teach texts in a punctuated way and deliberately hide passages that would reveal the nature of the servant. In there, you can use the Christian translation. I'm giving you like a free card here. It's true, as you said, if you don't know Hebrew, then when you go to Isaiah 53, verse 8, the last three words, mi pesha ami nega lamo, for the transgressions of my people, they were stricken. So that's changed by the Christian Bible to he was stricken. So you're right, that scam you're not going to figure out because you don't read Hebrew, and lamo is lahem. It doesn't say nega lo, it says nega lamo. So you're right, you're cooked. So what the church does is it teaches. Missionaries are taught to study very specific verses to memorize them, very specific passages and nothing else. And the church hides the Bible from their parishioners, has the, have them engage in a salad bar hermeneutics, where they just pick this and pick that and ignore everything else. And then grotesque, ignore the most, the most ecstatic prophecies in Tanakh. Talk about Isaiah chapter two. And it shall come to pass at the end of days 
that the mountain of the house of the Lord will you establish on the highest of the mountains above the hills, and all the nations will flow to it. And people will say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for out of Zion will go forth the law and the word of God from Jerusalem. Verse 4, this is the Mashiach himself, he will judge among the people. He will decide disputes among the nations. They will beat the swords into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks. A nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither will they learn of war anymore. You know how famous those words are? That's the epic messianic prophecy in Tanakh. That prophecy is so well known that our good friends in the United Nations are smart enough to put that prophecy up on First Avenue and 42nd on Second Street on the Northeast corner, right opposite the United Nations called Isaiah Wall. Do you know that those words never made it into the New Testament? Do you know there's not one place in the entire Christian Bible with those epic words, that eternal oracle is quoted because Jesus didn't do any of that? He didn't bring about the redemption of the world where all the nations will speak in a pure speech, where the knowledge of God will cover the world as the water covers the sea, bring about the building of a temple, bring about peace on earth. did none of those things. What he did was trigger a religion that would bring about such blood, such transition from, from people who had a benign understanding of the Jews to people who would despise us. So that's the point I would suggest to people. Read Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 and verse 10, not just verse 9. And if you read verse 10, you'll realize the Mashiach has to give a rebuke to the nations, and bring about the peace in the end of battles. That has not yet happened. It will happen, please God, very soon. That's a good question. Thank you. Um, you know, the Torah teaches what we Jews always understood as a metaphor, that man was created in the image of God. And we know God is transcendent and completely and utterly unlike anything in the created world. As God explicitly says, I am not like man and curses those who put their faith in a man of flesh in Jeremiah 17, 5. Yet Christianity assaults this biblical truism by claiming the opposite, that God is created in the image of man. Born-again Christians often find Jesus after hitting rock bottom, after years of abusing alcohol or drugs or committing crimes. But what really irks me is the fact that in their view, a person who doesn't believe in Jesus but spends his entire life doing good deeds is headed for eternal damnation. Yet a murderer who committed evil acts his entire life but had a come to Jesus moment before taking his final breath on death row is headed to heaven. There is just zero justification for this in the Torah. In fact, the Torah never commanded, commands us to have faith but rather to know God, i.e. by studying his Torah and his lofty creation, be it science, physics, or mathematics. Judaism is not a faith-based religion, but an action-based religion. How then do Christians rationalize this irreconcilable difference between the Torah and the New Testament? Christians are very familiar with the Christian Bible, but have a superficial knowledge of the Jewish scriptures. They surely are familiar with the record of creation found in Genesis, 
story of the flood that occurred years later. They heard about Abraham and parents told them about the Exodus. They, those stories they know, but not much else. Christianity has a huge problem, and that is, how do you explain why you need a Jesus figure? It means you're quite right. The Torah tells us very clearly that there are two things HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy One, wants in his relationship with us. Number one, he wants Devekos. He wants to be close to us, to love HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to know that he is intimately involved in your life. He wants to be close to you. The only thing that could separate you and him is your actions, not his. And number two is to be faithful to him. Kodesh Baruch Hu frequently refers to his relationship with those who are faithful, a husband and wife, Isaiah 54. What, what would make a good marriage is love and loyalty. That's it. And that's why Isaiah, what's what Isaiah 54 and so many other chapters convey. HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants to be close to you. He adores you. If you've made a mistake in your life, turn to him, say, I'm sorry. Regret what you've done. Turn away from your ways. Hashem will freely forgive you. Torah promises that. Sometimes people are incapable of doing tshuva because they think that God would never forgive me for the things that I've done. But God's ways are higher than your ways. Isaiah 55, verse 6, 7, 8, 9. God will forgive you. Even though you have trouble forgiving others, he will forgive you. So Tanakh is a perfect system. The Torah conveys a, just a, a, beautiful, a beautiful system of a connection between HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy One, blessed be his name, and not just Am Yishol, not just the nation of Israel, but every human being is creating the image of God. It's just the Jews have a, a role to be a light to the nations, but HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants every person to have a pure relationship with him and to believe in him, to bend their knee to him alone and no other, to praise him and no other. That's all Hashem wants. So how, when you take a perfect system like that, how do you then add something vestigial? How do you explain a fifth wheel? How do you sell snowballs to the Eskimos? How do you explain why you need a Messiah that would die for your sins when there's no idea like that, remotely resembling anything like that in Tanakh? In fact, Tanakh says that no innocent person could die for the sins of the wicked. That's utterly impossible. The way you can pull that off is you've got to tell people that theoretically, if you kept the Torah properly, then you can be saved by your own actions. But man is utterly sinful. Mankind is utterly depraved. Literally, that's the term that's used. Total depravity is the name of theology that Christians embrace. That man, no initiative man could save him. And therefore you need Jesus who was the perfect person and he died for your sins, which is I'm not going to say insane. It's insane. <laughs> Let me explain to you why it's insane. It's insane because that idea is opposed by the Jewish scriptures. But I want to tell you why it's insane for a reason you never thought of. And I don't think I ever said this to anybody. It's insane. And I'm not trying to be disrespectful. But the reason this is so problematic is if you or I were born to a virgin, 
Okay. And we're the son of God in a, in a Christian sense, and we're God, we wouldn't sin either. It means neither would a rock, a rock won't sin either. It means once you claim that Jesus is God, a member of the triune Godhead, and born to a virgin, born without sin, that means he can't sin. That means Jesus cannot wind up in a bar on a Friday night, which happens to also be Yom Kippur doing Kol Nidre. He can't. And he certainly can't wind up in a gay bar on Shabbos. I'm not trying to be provocative. I want you to think this through. You see, what happens is when you make things up, the liar has the problem of keeping all the lies in order. See, the moment you start to play with things, you've got this other thing that doesn't fit. The problem is the moment you claim that Jesus is, wasn't just a tzaddik, a righteous man, but he was God in the flesh, born to a virgin, means before he even came out of his mother's womb, he was sinless, stainless, blemishless, and he can't be righteous because righteous conveys that this individual had free will and chose virtue and rejected sinfulness. But Jesus never rejected sinfulness because it was never a real option. It was never a real opportunity. You see how much trouble you get yourself in? The most important thing is these ideas are utterly antithetical to the teachings of the Jewish scriptures. And what Paul did, what the church fathers did, what the writers of the gospel did is smush them together, conflated or tried to conflate this all together, and it in reality doesn't work. But you might be asking, and how did Christianity succeed in becoming the largest religion in the world? Well, don't be impressed by being the biggest in the world, because if I challenge you and ask you, at what point in one juncture in history did the majority of the world, were they right about anything? You'd have a hard time coming up with any moment in history where you could say that. So that doesn't right. nourish any kind of credibility. But it's very attractive to convey to people who struggle with the self-esteem that is broken. And this is what people are really struggling with. I want to talk to you, the viewer, for a moment. Think about the biggest mistakes you've made in your life. Think about the decisions you've made that you really regret and you really wish you had done things differently in your life. What could we say about your state of mind at the time? Was your self-esteem very high, robust? Probably not. Probably your self-esteem was shattered. You were at the lowest point. You were you looked in the mirror and saw something very unattractive, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, physically, and everywhere, way ugly. Christianity is here with the message, and that is you are a sinner, you are filthy, you are dirty, and that low self-esteem, in fact, comports perfectly with who you really are, and you can't do it. And someone else who's prettier than you, someone who's more handsome than you, someone somebody who's far more perfect than you, did it for you, and didn't betray you, but in quite the opposite, died for you. That's why the testimonials of Christians sound like that. I was a rock drummer. I was shooting up heroin. I had needle marks all over my arms, and that's when I found Jesus. People who convert to Judaism don't talk that way. 
Generally speaking, when you meet people who have converted to the Jewish faith, people who have found Judaism, Bali Tshuva, those who have repented, people who become B'nai Noach, righteous among the nations, will tell you that they weren't drunk, drunk or high or laying in their own vomit in Midtown Manhattan, but rather studying texts and came to know about the God of Israel. This is a message in Tanakh. So Christianity gains its traction by appealing to the low self-esteem and validating low self-esteem and saying, you really are a sinner. You really are worthless. And there's nothing you can do to save yourself. Here's Jesus. And that's why it works. And that's why it's so toxic and so dangerous. It works for every cult. I mean, I think most cults operate that way. Yeah. You know, they get the lowest common denominator, even within Judaism, there's uh, fanatical cults that do the exact same thing. So um, it's very important that people are aware of this. I think this is the last question. So um, I wanted to talk about Islam, because Islam is a monotheistic religion and would probably qualify as fulfilling the Noahide laws required by the Torah. Um, would you agree with that? Is it? Would you consider that to be... Um, you know, a Noahide religion, or is it actually its own thing? It's not, it's not Noahide. Does it qualify? Does it matter? Um, another thing is... So let me just, let me just yeah. address that very briefly. Sure. So a lot of people uh, have a lot of unkind things to say about Islam, and sometimes they'll call it a cult. And as though Islam is like completely monolithic. So as it turns out, Islam is not. Uh, the one thing not all Muslims, but virtually all Muslims are real monotheists. There are some crazy iterations of Islam, which sort of deify Ali and so on, but most of the Islamic world condemns that kind of stuff. So yes, Muslims are monotheistic. There are Muslims who believe the Torah is intact and uncorrupted. And those people are certainly, and live a proper, a life revering HaKadosh Baruch Hu, revering the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And these people should be considered the Hasidi Umazoylam. There are other Muslims who have different views, and those people should reconsider them. But there are members of the Islamic faith who can be considered the Hasidi Umazoylam because they are true monotheists and believe that the Torah of Moses is directly from Hashem and it's uncorrupted. So is there is there a path for any Christians? Let's say not everybody wants to convert to Judaism, but are there sects within Christianity that are, let's say, monotheistic, that reject the Trinity? That it aren't is, let me just say this. So there are Christian denominations that reject the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay. There are Unitarians, capital U Unitarians. By definition, that means they reject the doctrine of the Trinity. They're not idol worshipers. There are Christadelphians, a denomination you may have heard of. Um, they utterly reject the, do the doctrine of the Trinity. The Jay Witnesses reject the doctrine of the Trinity. So these people are not idol worshipers in any way. Is it possible that they can be considered in Noah? Yes. However, it's really, really a, a very bad idea for someone to be a Christian, even under those circumstances. Because they're then believing that a man died for your sins, and they then believe in vicarious atonement. They, they then believe in a lot of ideas that are unhealthy. So technically, they are, they are definitely monotheists, for sure, but it's not, the, it's not the highest place to be. It's not the ideal kind of relationship. 
if a woman is still sending her ex-boyfriend um, birthday cards when she's married, I can't say that she's her husband, when he discovers, will divorce her, but it's certainly not going to nourish a good relationship. It's not right. the best thing, right? It really wouldn't be... Right. Monotheism, so, like, uh, like for example, uh, there are there are Egyptian pharaohs who were monotheists who believe in one god, like Ra or something, but but they're still they're worshiping the wrong god. So it doesn't matter. If they're right. Monotheist. I mean, it's not just one god. That's a different issue. So right, it's not just one god. Like I can believe in one god, but if I believe that one god is a banana, so that doesn't qualify. <laughs> right. It, it, we're talking about the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As it turns out, the ancient Egyptians, there were these kind of, they were really henotheistic religions. And that's right. very prevalent. I mean, there's one big God, but there are a lot of little gods. And that's very much the Christian, that's the knowledge of the Christian. So I want to say this, that, because I, I don't want, you know, I don't want nice Christadelphians. They really are nice people. The best thing is look into it. Have a pure relationship with Hashem. I'm not saying that what you believe is utterly destructive and, that you but it, it's not the highest place you can be the highest place you can be is to believe in the one god of abraham isaac and jacob the mashiach is going to come he didn't die for anybody since the torah has not been replaced i mean unitarians believe that the torah has no you don't have to keep it any longer i'm talking the ritual commandments are no longer binding on jews romans chapter 7 colossians um chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. It means they believe in Pauline theology. So this is not edifying. You know, I want to say this to you, Christians. I want to be very straight with you. I used to not like you guys a lot. I grew up in New York, and Christians were, did not behave in a, well, a way that uh, would nourish any affection for, for them. And I didn't care what they believed in. I really didn't. Years later, I came to read the Christian Bible and I realized why you hated us. And I realized it's not your fault in a sense, meaning your mind is filled with this, this grotesque caricature of the Jews. I care about you. You can do better than that. So technically speaking, a Unitarian can be a, is a monotheist and can be regarded to some degree from the Chassidim Masoylam, but it's not a pure relationship. It's not a healthy, it's a very dangerous place to be. To in any way believe that the Torah has been, the commandments has been abrogated. That the Torah has, that, that the commandments are no, that Shabbos is, we no longer have to keep Shabbos. The Jews don't have to keep Shabbos. I mean, if you believe Paul, you have to believe that. That the, that the Torah is only a shadow and the essence is Christ. I'm not making this up. But it's there. I'm not setting up a straw man and toppling it. It's really there. This is destructive for your neshama. Talking to you is another Jew. You are creating the image of Hashem. It's not good for you. But yes, Unitarianism and the J witnesses, they believe that Jesus was the Archangel Michael. This is not a healthy place to be. It's a very, very spiritually, it's not good. It's not good for you. And they should repent of that and just become B'nai Noach, Worship the one God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that alone, nothing else. Amen. So the last thing, last part of that question was about um, what's happening in Israel, because I know this is what I want to end on. Um, you've done a lot of work to get 
these missionaries off of Israeli TV. And, um, you know, apparently they're making waves over there. So can you tell us a little bit about that and how you kind of fought it off and then we could end there? There are so many incidents, but we'll talk about that one. We'll talk about um, God TV. They're huge. This is the largest Christian broadcasting network in the world in nearly 200 countries. And if you look it up, that pretty much covers it all. God TV, which is committed to spreading the gospel, was able to secure a channel on Hot TV. Hot TV is by far the largest cable network in Israel. 700,000 Israeli homes subscribe to Hot TV. That's more than 50% of the market. And they secured a seven year lease for that channel, sold it as a Christian religious TV show, and the government gave them a license. Now, what the president and CEO of God TV did was he went on his channel and he started pleading for money and told everyone what he's really planning to do with this channel, and that is convert 9 million Israelis to Christianity. Meaning, in case you didn't get the memo, that's everybody. Men, women, and what is germane here, as you'll see in a moment, children. That A, was not how they got the license. B, is it's illegal in Israel to convert minors. About a third of Israel's population are under the age of 18. Channel 82 would be accessible to every family, every one of the 700,000 households. And they would have missionaries in the Hebrew language telling viewers in their bedrooms, in their living rooms, while mommy and daddy's away, while Abba Ima are at work, why you should believe in Yeshua as the Messiah. And he bragged about this and was raising fortunes of money to pay for this channel. If that channel had succeeded and stayed on, Hashem Yerachim, Hashem should only have mercy, what would have happened? Hashem had mercy. This came to our attention and we were able to take his words, capture his videos that he used to raise them. And this is how missionaries get caught, is they produce videos that go out on television, interviewed on networks around the world, pleading for money so that we can convert the Jews to Christianity, convert everybody to Christianity here in Israel. So Baruch Hashem will be able to capture, seize those grotesque declarations that he wanted to destroy the Jewish people and, and then broadcast that, go to the media, uh, supply that information so that media outlets around the world can then talk about it. This puts enormous pressure, awareness, and a question which, which needs to be answered is how do we solve the problem? If education is not the answer, there is no answer, and then everything I'm doing is wrong. Education is the only answer. And by actually, you can't compare hearing to seeing. 
when people were actually able to see on my large YouTube channel, Ward Simpson saying these things, seeing him saying that he wants to convert all the Jews to the mighty Yeshua, all the Jews should know about Jesus. Ultimately, thank God, his the license was taken away from him by the Israeli government. He could have then appealed it, but HaTV, thank goodness, they got rid of it. HaTV said, forget a contract over, which means there was nothing for him to appeal. And that homon, that enemy of the Jewish people, was put to arrest. And he saved us. And I've said this, that Ward Simpson, that one character, and there's many characters like this, but that one character, which is the head of a, a big Christian network, did more to counter the efforts of missionaries who were trying to convert Jews in 15 minutes than I'd done in 40 years. Wow. So, yeah. So wow. that was, thank goodness that happened, yeah. Chazaku Baruch for you doing that. Um, and uh, hopefully there's going to be a Tovia uh, channel one day on uh, Hot TV so we can, so we can uh, combat these things. And hopefully there are some young Tovias out there who are you know, going to follow in your footsteps. That's the goal. Yeah, a new generation. We, we, yeah, we just need a new generation of this. But thank you so much. Uh, this you. was amazing. Thank you. And, and uh, maybe just tell the channel for those who are interested in learning. You can actually watch me on my YouTube channel. It's just Tovia Singer, the name of the channel, and yes. millions of people watch there, so it's all accessible to you. Thank you so much. Yes. All right. <laughs> Have a good one. Thank you so much for having me on. Good.